before this episode of I Am, I Have, I wanted to let you know about an event we'd love you to join us for. Podfest for Mental Health will take place on Saturday the 30th of March at King's Place in London. We'll be recording five podcasts live in front of an audience ahead of Mental Health Awareness Week. The Naked Professors, The Book of Man, What I Wish I'd Known and I Am, I Have, along with special guests will all be recording on the day. There'll also be opportunities to meet and chat with all participants and hear more from the Happiful magazine team. Visit happiful.com for more information and tickets or search Podfest for mental health. We hope to see you there. Now, on with today's podcast. Welcome to I Am, I Have. I'm Lucy Donoghue and this podcast is brought to you by Happiful magazine and counselling directory. Now we all have mental health and some of us will experience or live with mental illness, but that doesn't define who we are. Through I Am, I Have will meet with some wonderful people who have spoken out about mental health and illness and find out more about who they are and the passions that shape their lives, as well as their reflections on their own mental health. We hope you'll join us and share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag I Am, I Have. I'm joined today by Emily Dean. Welcome, Emily. Hello. And I am, I have. It's all about who we really are in our own words. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, please. Well, I'm a dog lover. My name is Emily Dean, by the way. I should say what my job is and what I do. But I think the fact that I'm a dog lover is probably the most important thing about me. But we'll get back to that. I do a radio show with Frank Skinner on Saturday mornings on Absolute. I'm a co-host on that. Frank doesn't like the term sidekick. I don't mind it, though. (laughs) I also, I'm a writer as well, and I've just written a book called Everybody Died, so I got a dog, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And I host a podcast for The Times called Walking the Dog. Everything is dog-related, you'll find out, which is me and a sort of high-profile person talking intimately I guess about their life over a dog walk. Which is a fantastic podcast if you've not listened to it yet it's one of my absolute favourites and talking about dogs we're going to go straight on to your first I am which you've already mentioned you are a dog lover so tell us more about your your dog lover tendencies. Well I'm obsessed by dogs and I always have been obsessed by dogs and I think it started when I was a young child and I had this notion of what I call the dog family And the dog family to me represented everything that my family wasn't. So the dog family meant Blue Peter on the telly and a thing that the millennials listening to this won't know what this is, but there was a program called John Craven's Newsround as well. And it was the idea of you'd have tea on the table at 5pm and the mums, you know, would wear... I mean, a very old-fashioned, almost slightly Enid Blyton idea of what a family life was. And I think... I had this sense of a Labrador or any sort of dog really being at the heart of it because the dog represented constancy and security and domesticity. And we didn't really have that. It doesn't mean it wasn't an exciting, fabulous, interesting childhood, but it was my parents were kind of theatrical and worked in, you know, the the theatre and in media and in TV. And so we didn't have tea. We sort of we instead of fish fingers, we would stay up to the, at the dinner party and eat with the guests. And, you know, there's a thing I actually say in my book when I talk about it, about how I turned around to my mother once and I said, why is granny being horrible to me? And she said, I've told you because she's on amphetamines, darling. 
so that to me was just my normal. And you did, I just felt people wouldn't say things like that in a dog family, probably. So, yeah, it was just, I just yearned for one. And I used to pick dog families out and think, oh, they'll be a good, they'll be a good family. I can sort of infiltrate them a bit. And I'll sort of soak up some of their normalcy. And there was a there was a Labrador that I became particularly obsessed by. That was my first sort of love when I was younger. But yeah, so this just stayed a sort of constant thing throughout my life. And we never got a dog because he moved around and it just was never practical. And we weren't we weren't dog people. We couldn't give them what they needed, really. You now have a dog called Ray. Mm-hmm. And he's a beautiful dog. He's a bit weird looking. That's he's very kind of n- oh, you. Oh, come on now. I tell you what he looks like. He looks a bit like well, he's a bit like Chewbacca. You've seen him, haven't you? I've yeah. shown you pictures. He's Chewbacca meets a Wookiee. Oh, no, they are Wookiee. Are they the same thing, Chewbacca and Wookiees? I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know if they are. But he look basically he looks like something out of Star Wars, my dog. But I do, he's adorable and I love him and I just I should say I'm talking about dogs. And this is very apt because I've had a very exciting morning this morning. Can I talk about this now? I want you to talk about this now. Okay. So I'd arranged to do this podcast with you. And then I got this message yesterday asking me from Kensington Palace, asking, this is as a result of the podcast that I do for the Times, if I would go down to the Mayhew. And I don't know if people are familiar with the Mayhew, but it's an animal welfare charity and they do lots of great work with sort of rehoming dogs and cats. It was because the Duchess of Sussex was going to be there. And at first I was like, the Duchess of Sussex? And I was Googling and I thought, oh, is that one that's just of 80 or something? Or is it? <laughs> and then I thought, oh my God, it's Meghan Markle. I didn't know. Meghan Markle called. Yeah. <laughs> so I went down this morning and I it was incredible. So I spent the morning hanging out with Meghan, who was, let so, me say hanging out. I got to meet her. I was so lucky and I just embarrassed myself. And but um, and you yeah. showed her a picture of Ray. I showed her a picture of Ray, and she said, "Oh, come on, let's see, let's see, let's have, let's have a look." And she gestured to my phone, and I got him out. And I was desperately trying to find a picture of him where he didn't look weird, but then it turns out he looks weird in all of them. So luckily, she laughed and thought he was very cute. And so yeah, it's been a doggy morning. <laughs> so my passion for dogs has introduced me to royalty. There you go. But I mean, I think dogs do open up new pathways and friendships and I mean I don't know about you I've met so many people since I've got a a rescue dog called Zach who is I've got no idea what he is quite frankly but (laughs) I've met so many people and you start off with quite a kind of superficial oh here's my dog my dog's called this and then you know there's the poo conversation or the diet conversation or the and then slowly you get to see people because you see them on a daily basis or and and you you kind of have this insight into community that perhaps you might not have had before a dog it's so true and I think what happens is you I think what tends to happen is everyone has a natural inbuilt territorial hostility towards strangers we can't help it you know it's that thing of someone looking over your shoulder reading your paper on the tube it's like get off this is my space and I think we all carry that around with us particularly you know I live in a city you live in a city this is what happens but something I feel with dogs that allows people to shed that even temporarily even for 20 seconds so you know I remember Something that really brought that home very vividly to me was I was actually going to a meeting at my publishers, which is on the embankment, which is full of businessmen and women walking up and down. And I had Ray because I was taking him into the office and the people's faces, they were looking at this little dog. And it, they just, it just, something in them shifted. I could just see, it was like they 
they sort of shed that hostility and they just felt human slightly again. Yeah. And they smiled and that's been a real revelation to me, just that it's how dogs help you connect with other people. Yeah. And I love that. Absolutely. And watching people visibly soften. Yeah. And a conversation starter and, you know, dogs are just they help you connect because you know just the act of stroking a dog or because it's all non-verbal as well it's kind of non-threatening so yeah I think I think dogs are quite amazing so and what an amazing day as well I know I know I was I'm still quite overwhelmed by it no it was really incredible to me and actually the stuff we were I was talking to her I'm saying I was talking to her like she's my best friend but (laughs) no I think what's incredible about what they do actually touches on what you were saying, which is the sort of work they do with dogs is about, is with people. So they had, they introduced um, the Duchess of Sussex to this guy who'd been homeless and he was talking to her about his experiences with the dogs and how the dogs had really sort of, you know, obviously in that situation, that's, they're a real support, you know. And there were some elderly people there who come in and it's dog therapy, essentially. Yeah, therapies, they yeah. call it. Yeah, so, yeah, therapies. Yeah. You know more about it than me. You should have been meeting the Duchess. I'm you would have obsessive. known everything. I told Emily yesterday when we had a chat about this that I got my first dog as an adult from the Mayhew Animal Home and his name was Pip. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but he was nine when we got him. He had no teeth, so his tongue constantly hung out of his mouth. He had an irregular heart. But he was the best dog and we had him for three years and it's so interesting because I think sometimes with rescue dogs they come into your life at a certain time Yeah, and getting all strangely philosophical about this but I think you dogs can rescue you back as well yeah I think that's Um, true definitely and it was a time of great change and Pip actually died just after my dad died and it was a very big shift in my life and I think yeah I think dogs can really change your perspective and really take your heart as well so I think that's true I think you're right and I think actually it's a set I don't know about you but you've experienced bereavement obviously and I don't know how old you were or what the circumstances were but it's it's a strange thing isn't it and I think for me sometimes I'd wake up and I'd think I'd feel really bad I just think and then having Ray there it's shifted my perspective even just by five percent ten percent where I felt it's going to be okay yeah it's actually going to be okay because I'd sometimes think you know and actually after I lost my sister and actually my parents died in quite quick succession but I would when I after I got Ray just the difference that I would feel I'd be crying and again I don't know if you felt this but something about dogs is just so ridiculous. And Ray would do something stupid. That's what would happen. He'd just look at me. And you know when they, they dart around or they'll do something vaguely eccentric? And I just burst out laughing. Yeah. Because they snap you back to the moment. Yeah. Because, because they do something that human beings will never do. Is they They are in the moment. So they react as... A dog, they will never tiptoe around your grief because they don't understand it. They understand you being sad and they can comfort you in that way because I think dogs have a perception of of your emotions. Mm-hmm. But unlike people who may not know what to say or feel awkward, a dog will never do that. And you have to get up. You have to feed a dog. Yeah. You have to take them out for a walk. You have to pick up their poo. The world goes on in a way that you might want to deny when you're yeah. in grief. But it forces you to get out the door and get your black plastic bags and pick up the poo. 
And you feel better after that. Yeah. And I think what is so true, I really identify with that. And I, I remember reading about how dogs, that whole idea of living in the present, which is obviously very important when you're going through loss, as we both have. And I think I was fascinated by that idea that dogs are unable to live in anything but the present. They have no capacity to live in the past. They're literally baggage free. They have no baggage. So because of that, it means that, you know, there's no point telling them off when you find a poo on the carpet 10 minutes later because they won't be able to connect that incident with what they did 10 minutes ago. Yep. And I found that very powerful. It's almost like this idea that every experience is fresh, which is, again, when you're going through something complicated like bereavement, it's, okay, I had a really bad day yesterday, but that doesn't define who I am. That doesn't mean I am depressed forever. It just means I had a bad hour yep. or a bad day, you know. I mean, I'll be totally honest because, God, I'm oversharing my life away. I, I didn't have a great morning. I felt I woke up and, you know, it's the anniversary of my sister's death is coming up next week. I was with her daughters last night. That's always tough. It's a tough time of, of year. And I woke up and I felt a bit tearful. And then and then that was for an hour. And then I thought, well, I'm looking forward to coming and meeting you. And then I got to meet the Duchess of Sussex. to meet a princess. <laughs> I know. But that's what happens. And I think you. it's just, it, it really is just each each hour. Is how I try and live now. Yeah. And you're going back to Ray tonight? Ray will be... I know. I fed him this morning and I made sure he's... Yeah, I mean, the good thing is he's little, so it's not like... I take him out... I took him out for a brief stroll, but it's not like getting a sort of, you know, a husky or an Alsatian where you feel... I can leave him at home for periods of time. Yeah. Depending on how I want the house to look when I get back. He does go a bit crazy. It's a bit sort of adolescent teenage boys when the parents go away for the first time. You know, and they used to have those Facebook parties and re that's what it looks like when I get back to my house after Ray's gone run riot. He's an extraordinary little thing. He really is. I love it. And I love the joy they bring. I heard something which I really liked, which is, I think it was Freud, and I know his theories are less fashionable these days for all sorts of reasons, but having said that, I really liked what he said because he talks about how the difference between dogs and humans. And he says that dogs love their friends and bite their enemies. The same can't be said of humans. It's not that simple for them. Wow. Humans can't really have a pure love relationship like that. And we all know that, whether it's friends or loved ones. Yeah. Humans combine love and hate together, really. The, te the two tend to coexist a little bit more. Yeah. And his attitude, because he loved dogs, Freud. You know, he was obsessed by dogs. He was obsessed by chow chows. You know those dogs? Yeah. Who were sort of extraordinary looking. And I, I went through a period of really liking those, like, like they're oasis or something. Like, I had my brief crush on them. Yeah, he was obsessed by dogs and used to use them with his patients in therapy sessions. That's really interesting. And mm. does segue into yeah, our on. next I Am, which is going from Freud to, mm. you've said to us that you're an amateur psychologist, which is great for your job, but a nightmare for your friends. Tell me more. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, no one wants that. It's like, oh, I'm just wondering, well, don't you think that because your father may be left, it's like, oh, shut up about it. I just wanted to offload in the pub. Now what am I sitting with? Yeah, I think I've always been quite fascinated anyway about just human behaviour, really, and why we're driven to do the things we do and why we behave in the way that we do. And I think, I don't know, I think certainly that was one of the things that came out of loss, really, was that I think it can force you into this period of slight, I don't know, just being reflective and self-examination. And I started having therapy 
which was hugely beneficial to me and, and I found it very helpful. And I, it's funny, someone I interviewed on the podcast that I do, when he asked about therapy and he said, well, isn't it just blaming everyone else for your problems? And I said, well, that's the opposite of a good therapy. That's the opposite of successful therapy is you'll actually do the opposite, is that you'll hold yourself accountable ultimately. Yeah. But you, in order to do that, you sort of have to work out why perhaps you behave the way that you do. So, yeah, so I've always been interested in that. And it's something that I think increasingly I've become slightly more obsessed by it. And I think also there's just, I think there's been a really important shift recently that there's an openness, like the fact that you do this podcast and your magazine exists, you know, which to me is really positive that you often, you know, when people say that man up thing, which I can't bear. I mean, I just think there's something so primitive and awful and kind of brutal about that attitude and dishonest. And actually what's really interesting to me, and I don't know what your feelings on this are, but I notice and I feel this with men and I'm really conscious sometimes with the men that I know that it's it's harder for them. I think it is harder for them because of the sort of cultural conditioning. Agreed. And I think that's changing, but we know that's reflected in suicide rates and depression and all that kind of stuff. And I do sometimes sense that, that it's hard and it doesn't not go anywhere. Yeah. I think this idea that you man up and you never talk about it. Well, what do you think is going to happen to it? It has to go somewhere. It's it feelings. has to come out in some way. Yeah. It has to be expelled. And I, I, I agree with you. And I think there are lots of different initiatives to try and help with that you know campaign against living miserably the book of man now they're Mm. talking about the kind of new masculinity but I do think it's I do think it's tough and I think having these conversations Mm. you know whether you're an amateur psychologist or not actually sometimes asking the question that may not be asked in the pub yeah that can be a good thing even though you know it you might perceive it as your friends thinking you're slightly nightmarish well no that's the thing and I'm conscious that sometimes you know I was always aware even before I sort of got more interested in well even before I started actually having therapy myself Mm -hmm. I always felt when people would sort of you know if I had a, a friend talking about a romantic problem or sort of an issue in the family or I could sort of I find it interesting making those links because you can spot it with other people, it's less easy to spot in yourself. I think with the amateur psychologist thing, I mean, I joke about that, you know, being a nightmare. I think it can be helpful and I hope I would always give good advice and listen, but you've just got to be careful. It's a balance, isn't it? Where you're not going around sort of diagnosing people. Analyzing and people. I've got to use the force wisely. I've got to. <laughs> use it. Protect your own energy field as well. It's very important. I was going to say one of the things about your podcast, Walking the Dog, that I really like is I think it's a kind of therapy quite often when I listen to it. And I have noticed myself that it's much easier sometimes to have hard conversations when you're walking, when there's mm. forward motion mm. and you're not looking at each other. Mm. Put into that a dog that gives you an opportunity to occasionally break off, have a pause <laughs> moment and say, oh, I think he's just going for a sniff. But I've been really interested to hear the kind of depths that you can delve into in those right. conversations right. by the momentum of walking and talking about the environment and it's you'd speak with a lot of comedians as well so there's there's it's very funny but you're able to get deeper and you've quite often talked about therapy and mm. the George Lamb and Larry Lamb one you talked about their therapy and their relationship mm, together mm. 
And it's it's interesting that that those kind of ingredients make a recipe for really kind of letting go and divulging a lot more than you might think the conversation will yield. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's sort of interesting, the conceit of the walk, because you're absolutely right. You've got all those those sort of distractions there almost. So I think it's like you're sort of extracting stuff by stealth. They're, it's a bit it's a bit misdirection. They're not conscious of what you're doing in a way. Yeah. But I, I personally, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's something about not having the eye contact helps mm-hmm. because I think as soon as you have eye contact with someone, there is that just that human sense of feeling just... I mean, I don't feel it now. I hope you don't. No, I don't. But I think they, I think in that environment, if I was saying to a comic, have you had therapy? I don't mind if you ask me that. But if maybe that's an easier question to ask when you're kicking leaves and there's a, you know, Labrador pooing in the corner. Yeah, absolutely. I've just thrown it in, you see. So that's what happens. So, yeah, definitely. That was something I hadn't planned on. I, I didn't intend it that way. I think I wanted to do a show. And again, we're back to this amateur psychology thing that slightly went sort of a bit beyond or within I should say someone's sort of interior mind and their life and I I sort of felt you know when you read those interviews and it's in a hotel room and it's just a publicist there and they're talking about the perfume it's the same questions and it's all confined and I thought no I want to know what makes people tick and actually I've realized my dad was an interviewer and a journalist a long time ago and he People, when someone spoke at his funeral, Joan Bakewell, who was a colleague of his, and she said something really interesting about him. She said that my dad was known as the silent poisoner on his show, on the art show they presented, because he wasn't frightened of silence. And he would ask a question. And that's what would happen. And then sometimes they would jump in and he said, that's when you got the most interesting insight. And I found that, you know, I had a sort of up and down relationship with my dad throughout our life. And actually... Little moments like that I find very moving now because I think, oh, okay, I feel him. And I think I think of the silent poisoner when I'm doing that interview and sometimes you'll have to stop yourself rushing in because someone will say something and you'll think, okay, I'm just going to let them talk now because that's interesting. And that's a very therapeutic thing as well. That's something that's employed a lot in counselling is leaving mm-hmm. that that gap and watching what the person does and whether they're able to start the conversation and how they feel. So, yeah, that's a real, yeah, it's a real method and it can be hard. It can be hard. And do you think also, it's interesting what you say about that, I think whenever I've been in a situation where I feel uncomfortable or I feel someone's wanting a response and I want space, I think sometimes if you leave someone to make noise, I think it can be quite revealing. Do you know what I mean? I think because they're, it's like when you, it's like when on Twitter, let's say if someone starts abusing you, a troll starts abusing you. And that's why I'm a big believer in not responding to that. Because yeah. when you get into a dialogue with someone, it's very different. But actually, it's pushing the responsibility back to the other person, isn't it? And making them take the next step or reflect, mm. actually, on on what they're, what they really mean. Yeah. It can be a hanging question mark sometimes. Very interesting. And also, as you were saying that, I was thinking about 
your book mm. and you write from quite an early age mm-hmm. and it seems to me that you were an observer from a really early age as well and that's mm. that's carried through so when you write about your mum and your dad and your sister and the various cats <laughs> as well you've taken in the whole scene and yeah. everybody's personalities and how they work with each other mm-hmm. so do you think this is a long time thing a kind of analytical mm. brain Oh, that's interesting. I think what happens as a child, and I do sort of think this now, is that, yeah, I think I I definitely had a sense of our family being other, certainly. And I always thought every kid felt like that. I always thought every kid thought their family was, was other and a bit different and weird. But I, I certainly think within my family, I had a sense of being sort of noisy, and I, I call it the look-at-me gene which I tend to think anyone who ends up going into any sort of anything that involves them speaking in a public sort of, you know, context, I think they have the look at me gene. I call it that. And you spot it in people who are like, yeah, you've got the look at me gene. And, you know, and so I suppose I always had that. And my sister was distinct from that. She was not like that. She was kind of, but we were sort of a double act. So I guess I was the noisy, overbearing Chewbacca and she was the sort of considered... Han Solo, quieter, you know, that's that was really our thing. And then, you know, my parents, I mean, God knows who they were. So in some ways, I think you're right about what you were saying earlier about the observing. I think there was always that sense in me that I would notice things and really focus on them in a way that I'm not sure other people maybe did. I was just very, um, detail was always important to me. And I think things bothered me. I mean, I talk about, there's a thing in the book I I mention where our neighbour at the time, who was a sort of pop singer in the 70s, and she was dating this very famous movie star who was in The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape called James Coburn. And I can remember my grandfather coming over from New Zealand and he was just this GP and he was a bit sort of befuddled and he was going, well, what's your name, James Cockburn? And James Coburn said, no, sir, James Coburn. Coburn, sir. And I just wanted the grant. I just thought this is the most embarrassing thing that's ever. And I remember looking over at my family and they found it hilarious, which it was. And it was funny. But to me, it was everyone's looking at us, everyone's staring at us. We're weird. Trust us to mess this up. We're going to be ejected from this, you know, from, from this world now. What have you done? And it was that sense of being different and looked at which now, and it's taken me so long, I I like and I embrace. Yeah. And I think it's a great thing. But in my childhood, that was a that was something I, I struggled with, I think. And it's interesting that your next I am is that you say you're half noisy performer. <laughs> and so I am half noisy performer. I'm half introspective observer. Because that really echoes your book and what you were saying then about feeling really keenly that kind of embarrassment and otherness yeah Yeah. yes I think that's true well that is my other I am and I think there is that side to me which is and possibly we all have that I always feel when I started doing the radio show with Frank Skinner who was someone I met sort of you know later in life really and he asked me to do a radio show and I was at first I was panicky and I thought, oh, no, I can't do this. It's too sort of, it's too consciously acknowledging that I want to be the centre of attention and I feel uncomfortable and embarrassed about that. 
because what I want is to get attention, is to steal attention. Do you know what I mean? I want people to think, I want people to say, oh, she's interesting and funny, but I don't want anyone to know that I wanted that or I designed it. And it's it's a bit like, actually, that's no way to be. There's no There's no shame in saying, look, I have extrovert tendencies and I enjoy it. And doing the radio show every Saturday stops me being an absolute nightmare the rest of the week. So I think it's a good thing because I think it's like energy. You need yeah. to expel it. It's like exercise. So, yeah, but there is another side to me. And again, I'm sure I'm not, I'm sure this is common to a lot of people, but where I need sort of, it's important to feel quiet and to have alone time sometimes and that that observer thing as well yeah and it's hard I certainly find when I walk into a room sometimes there's an expectation that people think oh Emily's here okay you know the volume's going up to 11 and one the neighbours but then actually what I feel is oh no I'm not I'm not in that mood tonight I want to be and I used to find people a lot of the time would say are you okay and I think, yeah, I'm just not on. Yeah. I'm just not on. I'm just I'm just being I'm in a different frame of mind. But actually, I think that's changed. And actually that's one of the things with the bereavement. I think people got so used to my moods changing. And also they'd feel bad. Because if you say I remember someone said to me once, after my sister died, and I was crying, and someone said, What's wrong? And I said, It'll only ever be one thing for the rest of my life. If I cry yeah. from now on, it will always be about this. Because I knew that whatever else it was, a boyfriend or... It, it always really came down to this. This was my... You know, you get a pain source, don't you? And yep. that's it. And nothing else could sort of come close to that. So... But I think people just got kind of a bit more familiar with my moods, I suppose, just... Or just you're more open about it, I guess. I think it's hard if you're put in that position where you're the person that carries the conversation continually. Yeah. And... I can imagine with the bereavement that you've had, you know, you are the person who is still continuing that conversation. Yeah. So so that's tough to have that on you and you need to retreat. You were saying this morning was hard. You need mm. that space as well. So I get completely what you're saying about having that that outlet on a Saturday morning, but also needing to kind of gather yourself back up and I think it's the right I like having written I find the process of writing quite isolating. Yeah. And especially with the book, when I was writing about, you know, that was tough. It was tough mm. to revisit a lot of that stuff and to do with my family's deaths. And I, you know, and it's, and it's, that, it's that thing of when you're sort of in your head and you're just stuck in isolation, essentially, that can be, that's difficult. So this part of it is, to me, in some ways, I think mental health-wise... I think it's nice to have a balance of both. And I know there are those writers that you have that disappear to country retreats and I couldn't do that. I'd need to be able to go out and know I could speak to someone in the corner shop or someone, you know, I that would, I think that would be bad for my mental health yeah. personally. You need that release. I think so. So I think I need, what did I call myself again? Noisy show off or... You're um, a noisy, half noisy Noisy performer. Before. I know show off and my mum called me show off. I hate um, show off. Do you not like it? Well, that was the thing that would be said when I was younger if I was being naughty stop showing off and it was the thing that would stop you in your tracks if it was in front of friends it was horrible it's such a damning thing although there is it is quite funny saying it to adults because it's an incredibly <laughs> I mean it's it's a very passive aggressive thing I mean it's not just it's passive aggressive it's aggressive but it's oh stop showing off oh it's yeah 
you can't come back from showing off. The only thing you yes. can say is, I'm not showing off. And then it looks like you're being petulant. Yes. And then, you, but isn't that interesting? Because do you remember I was saying to you, I found, sh I felt shame in admitting that I wanted yeah. to perform, I guess, or to, or to put myself in a position where I was heard. Isn't it interesting that you found it shameful when someone called you a show off? Yeah. So actually, there is a sort of fundamental shame attached to that. What's what's shameful about being a show off is the idea that you wanted it. Yeah. It's, if someone had said to you, stop being so loud, but show off implies you want attention. Yeah. And even though as human beings, that's ultimately what we all crave. Yeah. Attention, not necessarily what the Duchess of Sussex had this morning with all the photographers outside, but even those nice men I just met outside, you know, recording this podcast... You want your partner or your friend to say, you know, yeah, you're better than everyone else or I've chosen you or, you know. Yeah. You want acknowledgement. Yeah. We all want acknowledgement. Yeah. But it's funny the the terminology, how it can make us shrink Yeah. again. And we've talked a bit about this already, but you've shared with us and, and also you've written in the book that you've lost a family but discovered that bereavement can be a powerful teacher. Mm. Can you reflect a little bit more on that for us? Yeah, I lost my sister, as I explained, and that was shocking. And that happened very suddenly. It was one of those, you know, I feel a bit fluey, and then three and a half weeks it really was. It was under four weeks she died. And this was your sister, Rachel? Yeah, my sister, Rachel. And it was just the timing was so strange, and she had a daughter who was 10, but she just had a baby. So her daughter, Alberta, it was a week before... It was a week after Alberta's first birthday, and it was really weird because I remember my sister saying, even though she was very sick and she sort of, you know, declined very rapidly, she was determined to have this party and she was ill. And I just thought, and of course I get it now. You know, she must have known. I wonder if she had a sense. And actually, I remember saying to my mum, I said, why is she having this party? She's too ill. And my mum just said, it's her daughter's birthday. And I thought, well, yeah, that would, she might have known that was her only one. You know, that was her first and her only birthday. So she, I, I can get that now. But yeah, it was it was tough, really hard, and and I think it hit me in a way I possibly ha didn't even process at the time. And then my mum got sick fairly soon after she got diagnosed with motor neuron disease, and she died. And then my dad died six months after her, so it was a really weird period. I mean, I say weird understatement of the decade. It was hideous. It was. I mean, I refer to it as you know, it was the game of thrones you know finale it was that episode and everyone experiences bereavement happens to all of us i just got mine all in one episode and i could have done with it being spread out throughout the series i can imagine maybe even across four seasons yeah <laughs> and it felt like also because of the nature of my family that they did you know it was all like no one had warned me and i also had that sense of they were bright lights that burnt out you know, and so, yeah, so it was tough and I felt very lonely and just when they died and, like, I also felt with my sister that she was my witness and that my witness had died. Yeah. And even now, sometimes with some of the stuff of my childhood and it's like, oh, no one else gets it, they don't understand and there's a bit I say in the book actually about when my dad was going out with this slightly old woman who'd had an affair with Colonel Gaddafi and I remember going to see a therapist and I thought, oh, I can't explain to you about Colonel Gaddafi, you don't understand. It was like... It's too much. You need that person Too much backstory. So, yeah, so the point of that was that after that all happened, 
I did go through quite a dark time and I just thought I can't cope. And then I I did this thing called the Hoffman process, which was sort of really a powerful thing for me. And it's a retreat. In my case, it was in Ireland, but they do them obviously regularly all over the country. I think Sussex is one I think it's based in. Um, and the essence of it, and obviously I don't talk too much about it, simply because I think if you're going to do it, it's the freshness of it. But um, for me, what was powerful was just learning to kind of love and forgive and understand my family and my parents. And, you know, they have this, the mantra at the Hoffman, which I find very powerful, is everybody is guilty, no one is to blame. And to me, that's really important. And I try and... You know, I say that even about my friends sometimes, and I feel like they probably think I've lost it. But if someone says something, it's a way of reminding myself that that, di that didn't mean to come across that way. You know, and also I was talking to someone recently about an argument with a friend. Again, I was doing amateur psychologist advising them. Great. And they were telling me about this friend they were having an issue with. And I just said, well, I think their behavior sounds to me like they're saying, don't leave me, love me. I'm scared you're... And when you sort of realise that everyone ultimately comes from a place of vulnerability, mm -hmm. even anger comes from vulnerability as being threatened, Especially isn't it? anger, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. Masking, yeah. Most emotions do. So I think that is something... Listen, I don't get it right all the time. I, I get it wrong a lot of the time and I still... But it's, it's there and I yeah. can't unlearn it now. So I certainly felt that was something that without their deaths... I know this sounds really odd, but I think... And probably some people might listen to this and think, oh, that's a fat lot of good. But it took losing them to really, well, my parents certainly, but I think it took losing them to really love and appreciate them in the way that I do now. Yeah. And I and I, I feel them in me and I see them in, every day I think of them in little ways and I think actually the legacy they gave me okay, they were a bit weird and they didn't serve fish fingers and pay their bills on time and they used, you know, final demands of champagne coasters and the Sex Pistols filmed in our bedroom and they forgot to tell me. And, you know, I mean, there was this catalogue of weird incidents and it was, there were moments of insecurity and a lot of, you know, some difficult moments in my childhood, but I love what they've, what I feel their legacy is which is just that sense of it's it's okay to be a little different and i and i i yeah i i'm so grateful to them for that that's wonderful i'm going to end with one final question if you could go back to teenage emily and whisper something in her ear from today what would you say to her don't buy that blue satin shirt with the diamante collar <laughs> But other than that, because I know that's not really what you want. No, but I like it. No, that's one thing. I would genuinely say it was revolting. I would say, and it's so difficult with this kind of thing because you don't want to sound cliched and you think it sounds a bit Instagram quote with a cloud up there. But I think for me, it really it really does come down to it's it's your story. It's your life. It's your journey. It's not anyone else's. And... If that differs from anyone else's, that's all right. It's about being authentic. So I would say be authentic and just write your own story. Thank you, Emily.
My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. And tell her you got to meet a princess. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm really excited about that. Well, it's, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't believe it. Well, I sometimes go because my sister's, I go, it's her anniversary soon. So I go to her grave and I talk to her. A bit weird, but I do. It's not weird. I know, but I might, t- and I take Ray. Yeah. I'm just, I can't believe that she loved my dog. This is so exciting. Well, she didn't love it, but she, she went, oh my God. Who wouldn't love Ray? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank I you, really Emily. enjoyed it. It's Thank been lovely. You. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I Am. I have brought to you by Counselling Directory and Happiful magazine. If you'd like to read more about mental health and well-being, head over to happiful.com and sign up to receive a free e-edition of the magazine every month. If you're looking for local counselling support, you can find over 15,000 counsellors at your fingertips at counselling-directory.org.uk. Finally, if you need to speak to someone immediately, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day on 116 123. And you can also email joe at samaritans.org. Help is available. This podcast has been produced by Happiful. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate, review and share on social media. We hope you'll join us again soon.